Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Last week, I talked a bit about my positive first impressions of Castle Rock. In it, I mentioned my enjoyment of the actor Scott Glenn. One of my favorite performances of his was in the HBO series The Leftovers. Perhaps you saw it. I did. I enjoyed it. The show is based on Tom Peretta's book of the same name. I haven't read it. My wife did and told me that she liked the show just a bit better. For those of you who are wholly unfamiliar with either the HBO show or the book, the idea is that millions of people, the world over, simply vanish without ceremony. On the show, the idea that the happening was the American Christian idea of the rapture was mentioned early, but then doesn't come up much later. In the book, it's a bit more obvious that certain groups are certain that it was. The Leftovers isn't horror, but I'd say it was worth the three seasons of watching. American Christians, specifically Protestants, many believe that this type of event is prophesied by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, and because of a translation choice from Greek. Now, children of the night, you didn't tune in to get a Bible lesson, and that's not what you're going to get. But I'm going to argue that the single most read horror story in the history of Western civilization can be found as the last book included in the Bible. I grew up in that uniquely American flavor of Christianity that was certain that the world would be dying in fire at any moment, and that'd be a painful, but good thing. The rapture mentioned in that letter would be a big milestone in the events outlined in the book of Revelation, and that book is filled with horrifying imagery. One of my favorite passages from the King James Version. And the shape of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, and in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. If the D.A.R.E. program had told me that this is the stuff you'd see on drugs, they'd have had me a sober man for life. If you're not a believer, I'd still encourage you to flip through the strange parts at the back, and don't judge the whole thing based on that. Even the father of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, questioned the choice of the Roman government-appointed committees that assembled what would make it into the Bible or not. As for me, I take the book at the back as apocalyptic literature that shouldn't be taken in any way literally. As for us, let's hear something just a bit more modern. Our first story comes to us from a name that will hopefully not be unknown to you. Robert Chambers was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1865 to a corporate and bankruptcy lawyer. Robert was first educated at the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute and then entered the Art Students League at around the age of 20, where the artist Charles Dana Gibson was his fellow student. Chambers studied in Paris from 1886 to 1893 
and his work was displayed at the Salon as early as 1889. On his return to New York, he succeeded in selling his illustrations to Life, Truth, and Vogue magazines. Then, for reasons unclear, he devoted his time to writing, producing his first novel. In The Quarter, his most famous and perhaps most meritorious effort is The King in Yellow, a collection of short stories published in 1895. This included several famous weird short stories, which are connected by the theme of a fictitious drama of the same title, which drives those who read it insane. E.F. Bellier described The King in Yellow as one of the most important works of American supernatural fiction. It was also strongly admired by Lovecraft and his circle. Chambers returned to the weird genre in his later short story collections, The Maker of Moons, The Mystery of Choice, and The Tree of Heaven, but none earned him as much success as The King in Yellow. Some of Chambers' work contains elements of science fiction, such as In Search of the Unknown and Police, about a zoologist who encounters monsters. Chambers later turned to writing romantic fiction to earn a living. According to some estimates, Chambers had one of the most successful literary careers of his period, his later novels selling well, and a handful achieving bestseller status. Many of his works were also serialized in magazines. His novel The Man They Hanged was about Captain Kidd and argued that Kidd was not a pirate and had been made a scapegoat by the British government. During World War I, he wrote war adventure novels and war stories, some of which showed a strong return to his old weird style, such as Marooned in Barbarians, 1917. After 1924, he devoted himself solely to writing historical fiction. Chambers, for several years, made Brattleben, New York, his summer home. Some of his novels touch upon colonial life in Brattleben and Johnstown. Robert W. Chambers died on December 16, 1933, after having undergone intestinal surgery three days earlier. Children of the Night, we will now hear the sins of writing such words, the yellow sign, from the collections of shorts, The King in Yellow. Let the red dawn surmise what we shall do When this blue starlight dies and all is through. 1. There are so many things which are impossible to explain. Why should certain chords in music make me think of brown and gold tints of autumn foliage? Why should the mass of St. Cecile send my thoughts wandering among caverns whose walls blaze with ragged masses of virgin silver? What was it in the roar and turmoil of Broadway at six o'clock that flashed before my eyes the picture of a still Breton forest where sunlight filtered through spring foliage and Sylvia bent half curiously, half tenderly over a small green lizard murmuring, to think that this is also a little ward of God? When I first saw the watchman, his back was towards me. I looked at him indifferently until he went into the church. 
I paid no more attention to him than I had to any other man who lounged through Washington Square that morning, and when I shut my window and turned back into my studio, I had forgotten him. Late in the afternoon, the day being warm, I raised the window again and leaned out to get a sniff of air. A man was standing in the courtyard of the church, and I again noticed him with as little interest as I had that morning. I looked across the square to where the fountain was playing, and then, with my mind filled with vague impressions of trees, asphalt drives, and the moving group of nursemaids and holidaymakers, I started to walk back to my easel. As I turned, my listless gaze included the man below in the churchyard. His face was towards me now, and with a perfectly involuntary movement I bent to see it. At the same moment he raised his head and looked at me. Instantly I thought of a coffin worm. Whatever it was about the man that repelled me I did not know, but the impression of a plump white graveworm was so intense and nauseating that I must have shown it in my expression, for he turned his puffy face away with a movement which made me think of a disturbed grub in a chestnut. I went back to my easel and motioned the model to resume her pose. After working a while, I was satisfied that I was spoiling what I had done as rapidly as possible, and I took up a palette knife and scraped the color out again. The flesh tones were shallow and unhealthy, and I did not understand how I could have painted such a sickly color into a study which before that had glowed with healthy tones. I looked at Tessie. She had not changed, and the clear flush of health dyed her neck and cheeks as I frowned. Is it something I've done? she said. No, I've made a mess of this arm, and for the life of me I can't see how I came to paint such mud as that into the canvas, I replied. Don't I pose well? she insisted. Of course, perfectly. Then it's not my fault? No, it's my own. I'm very sorry, she said. I told her she could rest while I applied rag and turpentine to the plague spot on my canvas, and she went off to smoke a cigarette and look over the illustrations in their courier francaise. I did not know whether it was something in the turpentine or defect in the canvas, but the more I scrubbed, the more that gangrenous seemed to spread. I worked like a beaver to get it out, and yet the disease appeared to creep from limb to limb of the study before me. Alarmed, I strove to arrest it, but now the color on the breast changed, and the whole figure seemed to absorb the infection as a sponge soaks up water. Vigorously, I applied palette knife, turpentine, and scraper, thinking all the time what a seance I should hold with Duval, who had sold me the canvas. But soon I noticed that it was not the canvas which was defective, nor yet the colors of Edward. It must be the turpentine, I thought angrily or else my eyes had become so blurred and confused by the afternoon light that I can't see straight. I called Tessie, the model. She came and leaned over my chair, blowing rings of smoke into the air. "'What have you been doing to it?' she exclaimed. "'Nothing,' I growled. "'It must be this turpentine.' "'What a horrible color it is now,' she continued. "'Do you think my flesh resembles green cheese?' "'No, I don't,' I said angrily. Did you ever know me to paint like that before? No, indeed. Well, then. It must be the turpentine or something, she admitted. She slipped on a Japanese robe and walked to the window. 
I scraped and rubbed until I was tired and finally picked up my brushes and hurled them through the canvas with a forcible expression, the tone alone of which reached Tessie's ears. Nevertheless, she promptly began, "'That's it. Swear and act silly and ruin your brushes. You've been three weeks at that study, and now look. What's the good of ripping the canvas? What creatures artists are?' I felt about as much ashamed as I usually did after such an outbreak, Then I turned the ruined canvas to the wall. Tessie helped me clean my brushes and then danced away to dress from the screen. She regaled me with bits of advice concerning the whole or partial loss of temper, until, thinking perhaps I had tormented sufficiently, she came out to implore me to button her waist where she could not reach it on the shoulder. Everything went wrong from the time you came back from the window and talked about that horrid-looking man you saw in the churchyard, she announced. Yes, he probably bewitched the picture, I said, yawning, looking at my watch. It's after six, I know, said Tessie, adjusting her hat before the mirror. Yes, I replied. I didn't mean to keep you so long. I leaned out the window, but recoiled with disgust, for the young man with the pasty face stood below in the churchyard. Tessie saw my gesture of disapproval and leaned from the window. "'Is that the man you don't like?' she whispered. I nodded. "'I can't see his face, but he does look awful, fat and soft. Some way or other,' she continued, looking at me. "'He reminds me of a dream, an awful dream I once had. Or,' she mused, looking down at her shapely shoes, "'was it a dream after all?' "'How should I know?' I smiled. Tessie smiled in reply. You were in it, she said, so perhaps you might know something about it. Tessie, Tessie, I protested. Don't you dare flatter me by saying you dream about me. But I did, she insisted. Shall I tell you about it? Go ahead, I replied, lighting a cigarette. Tessie leaned back on the open window sill and began very seriously. One night last winter, I was lying in bed thinking about nothing at all in particular. I had been posing for you when I was tired out, yet it seemed impossible for me to sleep. I heard the bells in the city ring ten, eleven, and midnight. I must have fallen asleep about midnight because I don't remember hearing the bells after that. It seemed to me that I had scarcely closed my eyes when I dreamed about something that impelled me to go to the window. I rose, and raising the sash, leaned out. Twenty-fifth Street was deserted as far as I could see, I began to be afraid. Everything outside seemed so, so black and uncomfortable. Then the sound of wheels in the distance came to my ears, and it seemed to me as though that was what I must wait for. Very slowly the wheels approached, and finally I could make out a vehicle moving along the street. It came nearer and nearer, and when it passed beneath my window I saw it was a hearse. Then, as I trembled with fear, the driver turned and looked straight at me. When I woke, I was standing by an open window, shivering with cold, but the black-pummeled hearse and driver were gone. I dreamed this dream again last March, and again awoke beside the open window. Last night, the dream came again. You remember how it was raining. When I awoke, standing at the open window, my nightdress was soaked. But where do I come into the dream? I asked. You, you were in the coffin, but you were not dead. In the coffin? Yes. How did you know? Could you see me? No, I only knew you were there. 
Had you been eating Welsh rabbits or lobster salad? I began laughing. But the girl interrupted me with a frightened cry. Hello, what's up? I said, as she shrank into the embrasure by the window. The, the man below in the churchyard. He drove the hearse. Nonsense, I said, but Tessie's eyes were wide with terror. I went to the window and looked out. The man was gone. Come, Tessie, I urged. Don't be foolish. You've posed too long. You're nervous. Do you think I could forget that face? She murmured. Three times I saw that hearse pass below my window, and every time the driver turned up and looked at me. His face was so white and soft. It looked dead. It looked as if it had been dead a long time. I induced the girl to sit down and swallow a glass of masala. Then I sat down beside her and tried to give her some advice. Look here, Tessie, I said. You go to the country for a week or two, and you'll have no more dreams about hearses. You pose all day, and then when night comes, your nerves are upset. You can't keep this up. Then again, instead of going to bed when your day's work's done, you run off to picnics at Seltzer Park or go to the El Dorado or Coney Island, and when you come here in the morning, you're all fagged out. There was no real hearse, and that was a soft-shell crab dream. She smiled faintly. What about the man in the churchyard? Oh, he's an ordinary, unhealthy, everyday creature. As true as my name's Tessie Reardon, I swear to you, Mr. Scott, that the face of the man below in the churchyard is the face of the man who drove the hearse. What of it? I said. It's an honest trade. Then you do think I saw a hearse? Oh, I said diplomatically. If you really did, it might not be unlikely that the man below drove it. There's nothing in that. Tessie rose, unrolled her scented handkerchief, and taking a bit of gum from a knot in the hem, placed it in her mouth. Then, drawing on her glove, she offered me a hand, with a frank, Good night, Mr. Scott, and walked out. The next morning, Thomas the bellboy brought me the herald and a bit of news. The church next door had been sold. I thanked heaven for it. Not that, being a Catholic, I had any repugnance for the congregation next door— but because my nerves were shattered by a blatant exhorter, whose every word echoed through the aisle of the church as if it had been my own rooms, and who insisted on his R's with a nasal persistence which revolted my every instinct. Then, too, there as a fiend in human shape, an organist who reeled off some of the grand old hymns with an interpretation of his own, and I longed for the blood of a creature who could play the doxology with an amendment of minor chords which one only hears in a quartet of the very young undergraduates. I believe the minister was a good man, but when he bellowed, and the Lord said unto Moses, The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name, my wrath shall wax hot and I will kill you with the sword. I wondered how many centuries of purgatory it would take to atone for such a sin. Who brought the property? I asked Thomas. Nobody that I know, sir. They do say the gent what owns the Hamilton Flats was looking at it. He might be bidding more studios. I walked to the window. The young man with the unhealthy face stood by the churchyard gate, and at the mere sight of him the same overwhelming repugnance took possession of me. By the way, Thomas, I said, Who's that fellow down there? Thomas stiffened. That there worm, sir. He's the night watchman of the church. 
He makes me tired of sitting out all night on them steps and looking at you insulting like. I'd have punched his head, sir, begging pardon, sir. Go on, Thomas. One night I coming home with Harry and the other English boy. I see him sitting there on them with the steps. We had Molly and Jen with us, or the two girls on the tray service, and he looks so insulting at us up, and I says, What you looking at, fat slug? Begging pardon, sir, but that's how I says it, sir. Then he don't say nothing, and I says, Come out and I'll punch you in the puddin' Then I opens the gate and goes in, but he don't say nothing, only it looks insulting like. Then I hit him one, but I guess Ed was that cold and mushy, it sickened you to touch him. What did he do then? I asked curiously. Him? Nothing. And you, Thomas? The young fellow flushed in embarrassment and smiled uneasily. Mr. Scott, sir, I ain't no coward, and I can't make it out what all why I run. I was with the fifth Lancers, sir, bugler at Tel Kabir, and was shot by the wells. You don't mean to say you ran away? Yes, sir, I run. Why? That's just what I want to know, sir. I grab Molly and run, and the rest of us just as frightened as I. But what were they frightened at? Thomas refused to answer for a while, but now my curiosity was aroused about the repulsive young man below, and I pressed him. Three years' sojourn in America had not only modified Thomas's cockney dialect, but had given him the American's fear of ridicule. You won't believe me, Mr. Scott, sir. Yes, I will. You'll laugh at me, sir. Nonsense. He hesitated. Well, sir, it's God's truth that when I hit him and grabbed my wrist, sir, and when I twisted his soft, mushy fist, one of the fingers come off in me and... The utter loathing and horror on Thomas's face must have been reflected in my own, for he added, It's awful, and now, when I see him, I just go away. He makes me ill. When Thomas had gone, I went to the window. The man stood besides the church railing, with both hands on the gate. But I hastily retreated to my easel again, sickened and horrified, for I saw that the middle finger of his ring hand was missing. At nine o'clock... Tessie appeared and vanished behind the screen with a merry, "'Good morning, Mr. Scott.' While she had reappeared and taken her pose upon the model stand, I started a new canvas much to her delight. She remained silent as long as I was on the drawing, but as soon as the scrape of the charcoal ceased and I took up my fixative, she began to chatter. "'Oh, we had such a lovely time last night. We went to Tony Pasteur's.' "'Who are we?' I demanded. "'Oh, Maggie, you know, Mr. White's model and Pinky McCormick.' We call her Pinky because she's got that beautiful red hair you artists like so much. And Lizzie Burke. I sent a shower of fixative over the canvas and said, Well, go on. We saw Kelly and Baby Barnes, the skirt dancer, and, and all the rest. I made a mash. Then you've gone back on me, Tessie? She laughed and shook her head. He's Lizzie Burke's brother, Ed. He's a perfect gentleman. I felt constrained to give her some parental advice concerning mashing, which she took with a bright smile. Oh, I can take care of a strange mash, she said, examining her chewing gum. But Ed is different. Lizzie's my best friend. She then related how Ed had come back from the stocking mill in Lowell, Massachusetts, to find her and Lizzie grown up, and what an accomplished young man he was, and how he thought of nothing of squandering half a dollar for ice cream and oysters to celebrate his entry as a clerk into the woolen department of Macy's. Before she finished and I began to paint, and she resumed to pose, smiling and chattering like a sparrow. By noon, I had the study fairly well rubbed in, and Tessie came back to look at it. 
That's better, she said. I thought so too, and ate my lunch with a satisfied feeling that all was going well. Tessie spread her lunch on a drawing table opposite me, and we drank our claret from the same bottle and laid our cigarettes from the same match. I was very much attached to Tessie. I had watched her shoot up into a slender but exquisitely formed woman from a frail, awkward child. She had posed for me during the last three years, and among all my models she was my favorite. It would have troubled me very much indeed had she become tough or fly, as the phrase goes, but I had never noticed any deterioration for her manner, and felt at heart that she was all right. She and I had never discussed morals at all, and I had no intention of doing so, partly because I had none myself, and partly because I knew she would do what she liked in spite of me. Still, I did hope she would steer clear of complications, because I wished her well, and then also I had a selfish desire to retain the best model I had. I knew that mashing, as she termed it, had no significance with girls like Tessie, and that such things in America did not resemble in the least the same things in Paris. Yet having lived with my eyes open, I also knew that somebody would take Tessie away some day, in one manner or another, and though I professed to myself that marriage was nonsense, I sincerely hoped that, in this case, there would be a priest at the end of the vista. I am a Catholic, when I listen to high mass, when I sign myself, I feel that everything, including myself, is more cheerful, and when I confess, it does me good. A man who lives as much alone as I do must confess to somebody. Then again, Sylvia was Catholic, and it was reason enough for me. But I was speaking of Tessie, which is very different. Tessie also was Catholic, and much more devout than I, so, taking it all in all, I had little fear for my pretty model until she should fall in love. But then I knew that fate alone would decide her future for her, and I prayed inwardly that fate would keep her away from men like me, and throw her in the path of nothing but Ed Burks and Jimmy McCormick's bless her sweet face. Tessie sat up, blowing smoke to the ceiling and tinkling the ice in her tumbler. Did you know, kid, that I also had a dream last night? I observed. I sometimes called her the kid. Not about that man, she laughed. Exactly, a dream similar to yours, only much worse. It was foolish and thoughtless of me to say this, but you know how little tact the average painter has. I must have fallen asleep about ten o'clock, I continued, and after a while I dreamt that I awoke. So plainly did I hear the midnight bells, the wind in the tree branches, and the whistle of steamers from the bay, that even now I can scarcely believe that I was not awake. I seemed to be lying in a box which had a glass cover. Dimly, I saw the street lamps as I passed, for I must tell you, Tessie, the box in which I reclined appeared to lie in a cushioned wagon which jolted me over stony pavement. After a while, I became impatient and tried to move, but the box was too narrow. My hands were crossed on my breast, so I could not raise them to help myself. I listened, and then tried to call. My voice was gone. I could hear the trample of the horses attached to the wagon, and even the breathing of the driver. Then another sound broke upon my ears like the raising of a window-sash. I managed to turn my head a little, and found I could look not only through the glass cover of my box, but also through the glass panes in the side of the covered vehicle. I saw houses, empty and silent, with neither light nor life about any of them excepting one. 
In that house, a window was open on the first floor, and a figure, all in white, stood looking down into the street. It was you. Tessie had turned her face away from me and was leaning on the table with her elbow. I could see your face, I resumed, and it seemed to me very sorrowful. Then we passed on and turned into a narrow lane. Presently the horse stopped. I waited and waited, closing my eyes with fear and impatience. But all was silent as the grave. After what seemed to me hours, I began to feel uncomfortable. A sense that somebody was close to me made me unclose my eyes. Then I saw the face of the hearse driver looking at me through the coffin lid. A sob from Tessie interrupted me. She was trembling like a leaf. I saw I had made an ass of myself and attempted to repair the damage. Why, Tess, I said, I only told you this to show you what influence your story might have on another person's dreams. You don't suppose I really lay in a coffin, do you? What are you trembling for? Don't you see that your dream and my unreasonably dislike for that inoffensive watchman of the church simply set my brain working as soon as I fell asleep? She laid her head between her arms and sobbed as if her heart would break. What a precious trimple donkey I'd made of myself. But I was about to break my record. I went over and put my arm around her. Tessie, dear, forgive me, I said. I had no business to frighten you with such nonsense. You are too sensible a girl, too good a Catholic to believe in dreams. Her hand tightened on mine, and her head fell back upon my shoulder, but she still trembled and I petted her and comforted her. Come, Tess, open your eyes and smile. Her eyes opened with a slow, languid movement and met mine, but their expression was so queer that I hastened to reassure her again. It's all humbug, Tessie. You surely are not afraid that any harm will come to you because of that. No, she said, but her scarlet lips quivered. Then what's the matter? Are you afraid? Yes, not for myself. For me, then? I demanded gaily. For you, she murmured in a voice almost inaudible. I... I care for you. At first I started to laugh, but when I understood her, a shock passed through me and I sat like one turned to stone. This was the crowning bit of idiocy I had committed. During the moment which elapsed between her reply and my answer, I thought of a thousand responses to that innocent confession. I could pass it by with a laugh, I could misunderstand her and reassure her as to my health, I could simply point out that it was impossible that she could love me. But my reply was quicker than my thoughts, and I might think and think now when it's too late, for I had kissed her on the mouth. That evening I took my usual walk in Washington Park, pondering over the occurrences of the day. I was thoroughly committed. There was no back-out now and I stared the future straight in the face. I was not good, not even as scrupulous, but I had no idea of deceiving either myself or Tessie. The one passion of my life lay buried in the sunlit forests of Brittany. Was it buried forever? Hope cried no. For three years I had been listening to the voice of hope, and for three years I had waited for a footstep on my threshold. Had Sylvia forgotten? No, I cried. Hope. I said that I was not good. That is true. But still, I was not exactly a comic opera villain. I had led an easy-going, reckless life, taking what invited me of pleasure, deploring and sometimes bitterly regretting consequences. 
But in one thing alone, except my painting, I was serious, and that was something which lay hidden, if not lost, in the Breton forests. It was too late now for me to regret what had occurred that day. Whatever it had been, pity, a sudden tenderness for sorrow, of the moral brutal instincts to gratify vanity, it was all the same now, and unless I wished to bruise an innocent heart, my path lay marked before me. The fire and strength, the depth of passion, of a love which I had never even suspected, with all my imagined experience in the world, left me no alternative but to respond or send her away. Whether because I am so cowardly about giving pain to others, or whether it was I have little of the gloomy Puritan in me, I do not know, but I shrank from disclaiming responsibility for the thoughtless kiss, and in fact had no time to do so before the gates of her heart opened and the flood poureth forth. Others, who habitually do their duty and find sullen satisfaction in making themselves and everybody else unhappy, might have withstood it. I did not. I dared not. After the storm had abated, I did tell her that she might have better loved Ed Burke and worn a plain gold ring, but she would not hear of it, and I thought perhaps that as long as she decided to love somebody she could not marry, it had better be me. I at least could treat her with an intelligent affection, and whenever she became tired of her infatuation, she could go none the worse of it, for I was decided on that point, although I knew how hard it would be. I remembered the usual termination of platonic liaisons, and thought how disgusted I had been whenever I heard of one. I knew I was undertaking a great deal for so unscrupulous a man as I was, and I dreaded the future, but never for one moment did I doubt that she was safe with me. Had it been anybody but Tessie, I should not have bothered my head about scruples, for it did not occur to me to sacrifice Tessie as I would have sacrificed a woman of the world. I looked the future squarely in the face and saw the, the several probable endings to the affair. She would either tire of the whole thing or become so unhappy that I should have to either marry her or go away. If I married her, we would be unhappy, I with a wife unsuited to me, and she with a husband unsuitable for any woman. For my past life could scarcely entitle me to marry. If I went away, she might either fall ill, recover, and marry some Eddie Burke, or she might recklessly or deliberately go and do something foolish. On the other hand, if she tired of me, then her whole life would be before her with beautiful vistas of Eddie Burke's and marriage rings and twins and Harlem flats and heaven knows what. As I strolled along through the trees by Washington Arch, I decided that she should find a substantial friend in me anyway, and that the future could take care of itself. Then I went into the house and put on my evening dress for the little faintly perfumed note on my dresser said, Have a cab at the stage door at eleven. And the note was signed, Edith Carmichael, Metropolitan Theatre, June 19th, 1890. I took supper that evening, or rather we took supper, Miss Carmichael and I, at Solari's, and the day was just beginning to gild the cross on the memorial church as I entered Washington Square after leaving Edith at the Brunswick. There was not a soul in the park as I passed among the trees and took the walk which leads from the Garibaldi statue to the Hamilton apartment house. But as I passed the churchyard, I saw a figure sitting on the stone steps. 
In spite of myself, a chill crept over me at the sight of the puffy white face, and I hastened to pass. Then he said something which might have been addressed to me, or might merely have been muttered to himself, but I had a sudden furious anger flare up within me that such a creature should address me. For an instant, I felt like wheeling about and smashing my stick over his head, but I walked on, and entering the Hamilton went to my apartment. For some time I tossed about in bed trying to get the sound of the voice out of my ears, but I could not. It filled my head, that muttering sound, like thick oily smoke from a fat-rendered vat or an odor of noisome decay. As I lay and tossed about, the voice in my ears seemed more distinct, and I began to understand the words he had muttered. They came to me slowly, as if I had forgotten them, and at last I could make some sense out of the sounds. It was this. Have you found the yellow sign? Have you found the yellow sign? Have you found the yellow sign? I was furious. What did he mean by that? Then, with a curse upon him and his, I rolled over and went to sleep. But when I awoke later, I looked pale and haggard, for I had dreamt the dream of the night before, and it troubled me more than I cared to think. I dressed and went down to my studio. Tessie sat by the window, but as I came in she rose and put both arms around my neck for an innocent kiss. She looked so sweet and dainty that I kissed her again and then sat down before the easel. "'Hello. Where's the study I began yesterday?' I asked. Tessie looked conscious but did not answer. I began to hunt among the piles of canvases, saying, Hurry up, Tess, and get ready. We must take advantage of the morning light. When at last I gave up the search among the other canvases and turned to look around the room for the missing study, I noticed Tessie standing by the screen with her clothing still on. What's the matter? I asked. Don't you feel well? Yes. Then hurry. Do you want me to pose as... as I have always posed? Then I understood. Here was a new complication. I had lost, of course, the best nude model I had ever seen. I looked at Tessie. Her face was scarlet. Alas, alas. We had eaten of the tree of knowledge, and Eden and native innocence were dreams of the past, I mean, for her. I suppose she noticed my disappointment on my face, for she said, I will pose for you if you wish. The study is behind the screen where I put it. No, I said, we will begin something new and I went to my wardrobe and picked out a Moorish costume which fairly blazed with tinsel. It was a genuine costume, and Tessie retired to the screen with it, enchanted. When she came forth again, I was astonished. Her long black hair was bound above her forehead with a circlet of turquoise, and the ends curled around her glittering girdle. Her feet were encased in the embroidered pointed slippers, and the skirt of her costume, curiously wrought with an arabesques in silver, fell to her ankles. The deep blue metallic vest embroidered with silver and the short, moresque jacket spangled and sewn with turquoise became her wonderfully. She came up to me and held up her face smiling. I slipped my hand into my pocket and, drawing out a gold chain with a cross attached, dropped it over her head. It's yours, Tessie. Mine? she faltered. Yours. No go pose. Then, with a radiant smile, she ran behind the screen and presently reappeared with a little gift-box on which was written my name. "'I had intended to give it to you when I went home tonight,' she said. "'But I can't wait now.' I opened the box. On the pink cotton inside lay a clasp of black onyx, on which was inlaid a curious symbol or letter in gold. 
It was neither Arabic nor Chinese, nor, as I found out afterwards, did not belong to any human script. It's all I had to give you for a keepsake, she said timidly. I was annoyed, but I told her how much I should prize it and promised to wear it always. She fastened it to my coat beneath the lapel. How foolish, Tess, to go out and buy me such a beautiful thing as this, I said. I did not buy it, she laughed. Where did you get it? Then she told me how she had found it one day while coming from the aquarium in the battery, how she had advertised it and watched the papers, but at last gave up all hopes of finding the owner. That was last winter, she said, the very day I had the first horrible dream about the hearse. I remembered my dream of the previous night but said nothing, and presently my charcoal was flying over the canvas and Tessie stood motionless on the model stand. The day following was a disastrous one for me. While moving a framed canvas from one easel to another, my foot slipped on the polished floor and I fell heavily on both wrists. They were so badly sprained that it was useless to attempt to hold a brush, and I was obliged to wander about the studio, glaring at unfinished drawings and sketches until despair seized me and I sat down to smoke and twiddle my thumbs with rage. The rain blew against the windows and rattled on the roof of the church, driving me into a nervous fit with its interminable patter. Tessie sat sewing by the window, and every now and then raised her head and looked at me with such innocent compassion that I began to feel ashamed of my irritation and looked about for something to occupy me. I had read all the papers and all the books in the library, but for the sake of something to do I went to the bookcase and shoved them open with my elbow. I knew every volume by its color and examined them all, passing slowly around the library and whistling to keep up my spirits. I was turning to go into the dining room when my eye fell upon a book bound in yellow, standing in a corner of the top shelf on the last bookcase. I did not remember it, and from the floor could not decipher the pale lettering on the back, so I went to the smoking room and called Tessie. She came in from the studio and climbed to reach the book. "'What is it?' I asked. "'The King in Yellow.' I was dumbfounded. "'Who had placed it there? How came it to my rooms?' I had long ago decided that I should never open that book, and nothing on earth could have persuaded me to buy it. Fearful lest curiosity might tempt me to open it, I had never even looked at it at the bookstores. If I ever had any curiosity to read it, the awful tragedy of young Castain, whom I knew, prevented me from exploring its wicked pages. I had always refused to listen to any description of it, and indeed nobody ever ventured to discuss the second part aloud so I had absolutely no knowledge of what these leaves might reveal. I stared at the poisonous yellow binding, as I would at a snake. "'Don't touch it, Tessie,' I said. "'Come down!' Of course my admonition was enough to arouse her curiosity, and before I could prevent it she took the book and, laughing, danced away into the studio with it. I called to her, but she slipped away with a tormenting smile at my helpless hands, and I followed her with some impatience. "'Tessie!' I cried, entering the library. Listen, I am serious. Put that book away. I do not wish you to open it. The library was empty. I went into both drawing rooms, then into the bedroom, laundry, kitchen, and finally returned to the library and began a systematic search. She had hidden herself so well that it was half an hour later when I discovered her crouching white and silent by the lattice window in the storeroom above. At the first glance I saw she had been punished for her foolishness. The king in yellow lay at her feet, but the book was open to the second part. 
I looked at Tessie and saw it was too late. She had opened the king in yellow. Then I took her by the hand and led her into the studio. She seemed dazed, and when I told her to lie down on the sofa, she obeyed me without a word. After a while, she closed her eyes, and her breathing became regular and deep, but I could not determine whether or not she slept. For a long while, I sat silently beside her, but she neither stirred nor spoke, and at last I rose and entered the unused storeroom, took the yellow book in my least injured hand. It seemed heavy as lead, but I carried it to the studio again, and sitting down on the rug beside the sofa, I opened it and read it through from the beginning to end. When faint with the excess of my emotions, I dropped the volume and leaned wearily back against the sofa, Tessie opened her eyes and looked at me. We had been speaking for some time in a dull, monotonous strain before I realized that we were discussing the king in yellow. Oh, the sin of writing such words! Words which are clear as crystal, limpid and musical as bubbling springs, words which sparkle and glow like the poisoned diamonds of the Medicis. Oh, the wickedness, the hopeless damnation of a soul who could fantasize and paralyze human creatures with such words, words understood by the ignorant and the wise alike, words which are more precious than jewels, more soothing than heavenly music, more awful than death itself. We talked on, unmindful of the gathering shadows, and she was begging me to throw away the clasp of black onyx quaintly inlaid with what we now knew to be the yellow sign. I never shall know why I refused, though even at this hour, here in my bedroom as I write this confession, I should be glad to know what it was that prevented me from tearing the yellow sign from my breast and casting it into the fire. I'm sure I wished to do so, but Tessie pleaded with me in vain. Night fell, and the hours dragged on, but still we murmured to each other of the king and the pallid mask, and midnight sounded from the misty spires in the fog-wrapped city. We spoke of Hastur and Casilda, while outside the fog rolled against the blank window panes as the cloud waves roll and break on the shores of Halle. The house was very silent now, and not a sound from the misty streets broke the silence. Tessie lay among the cushions, her face a gray blot in the gloom, but her hands were clasped in mine, and I knew that she knew and read my thoughts as I read hers, for we had understood the mystery of the Hades, and the phantom of truth was laid. Then, as we answered each other, swiftly, silently, thought on thought, the shadows stirred in the gloom about us, and far in the distant streets we heard a sound. Nearer and nearer it came, the dull crunching of wheels. Nearer and nearer, and yet nearer, and now outside the door it ceased, and I dragged myself to the window and saw a black, plumed hearse. The gate below opened and shut, and I crept shaking to my door and bolted it. But I knew no bolts, no locks could keep that creature out who was coming for the yellow sign. And now I heard him moving very slowly along the hall. Now he was at the door, and the bolts rotted at his touch. Now he had entered. With eyes staring from my head, I peered into the darkness, but when he came into the room I did not see him. It was only when I felt him envelop me in his cold, soft grasp that I cried out and struggled with deadly fury, but my hands were useless, and he tore the onyx clasp from my coat and struck me full in the face. Then, as I fell, I heard Tessie's soft cry, and her spirit fled to God, and even while falling I longed to follow her 
for I knew that the king in yellow had opened his tattered mantle, and there was only Christ to cry to now. I could tell more, but I cannot see what help it would be to the world. As for me, I am past human help or hope. As I lie here, writing, careless even whether or not I die before I finish, I can see the doctor gathering up his powders and files with a vague gesture to the good priest beside me, which I understand. They will be very curious to know of the tragedy, they of the outside world who write books and print millions of newspapers, but I will write no more, and the Father Confessor will seal my last words with the seal of sanctity when his holy office is done. They of the outside world may send their creatures into wrecked homes and death-smitten firesides, and their newspapers will batten on blood and tears, but with me their spies must halt before the confessional. They know that Tessie is dead and that I am dying. They know how the people in the house, aroused by an infernal scream, rushed into my room and found one living and two dead, but they do not know that the doctor said as he pointed to a horrible decomposed heap on the floor, the livid corpse of the watchman from the church, I have no theory, no explanation. That man must have been dead for months. I think I am dying. I wish the priest would. That was Robert W. Chambers' The Yellow Sign, as read by our own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and an associate editor at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio dramas. He shares life with a husband, dog, and cat. Thank you, Seth. Our second story comes to us from Carrie Jutner, a poet, author, and middle school teacher. Her writing has appeared in publications such as Daily Science Fiction, Nature Futures, and Grievous Angel. Carrie lives in Austin, Texas with her husband and pets. She has never dated a clown. Follow her blog at carriejutner.com or connect with her on Twitter at carriejutner. Links will be in the show notes. Tonight, you will be hearing Makeup. The first publication of the story was on Wattpad in November 2016, or was selected as one of the top 100 stories in TNT's horror contest. No, I've never been afraid of clowns. 
Yes, I've seen Poltergeist. It doesn't matter. Clowns don't scare me. I know, people claim to be afraid of them, but honestly, I think it's just an easy out. When someone asks you what you're afraid of, if you say clowns, you get laughter and camaraderie. Maybe a little good-natured ribbing. A conversation ensues about traumatic trips to the circus and favorite horror movies. What do you think life would be like if people shared their real fears? Growing old. Dying alone. Losing a beloved pet in a fire. Rape. Dismemberment. Suffocation. Not exactly party topics, are they? But at least they're honest. Do I go to a lot of parties? Well, no. But when someone asks what scares me, I never pretend to be afraid of something as silly as a clown just to be part of the group. My answer? I don't know. Blind dates? Dirt under my fingernails? The dark? Most people don't believe me when I say I'm not afraid of clowns. So I tell them this story to prove it. Of course, I leave off the ending. My proof is simple. I dated one. God, it's fun to watch those silly girls shiver when I say that. Inevitably, the first question they ask is, Did you know he was a clown when you met him? The answer is yes. The first time I saw Blake, he was performing. It was a few months ago. I was out shopping with my friend Cheryl. You won't use her real name, will you? Okay, good. So Cheryl and I were out shopping at this big outdoor mall up in Frisco. Her in-laws were keeping her three-year-old for the whole afternoon, and Cheryl was giddy with freedom. I'm not really the let's-go-buy-shoes-and-have-a-latte type, but it was her day, so I let her drag me around. We rounded a corner, lattes in hand, and ran into a huge crowd of people. Well, Cheryl can't pass up a crowd. She said something like, if so many people are there, it must be something good. Which really doesn't make much sense when you think about things like concentration camps and Miley Cyrus concerts. But whatever, like I said, her day. We wormed our way in until we can see what was going on. Apparently this yogurt shop was having its grand opening. Because, you know, the 157th self-serve yogurt shop deserves a big to-do. But what was drawing the crowd even more than the low-fat marshmallow flavor was the entertainment out front. The shop had hired a clown. But this was not just any clown. This guy was amazing. Other people don't see it, but clowning is an art. It's all about timing and eye contact and connecting with your audience. Not once during his handkerchief pulling or horn squeaking or somersaulting did I look at this guy and think, he can't wait for a break. He was into it, genuinely having a great time. And though he never spoke, his face had so much expression. Cheryl is not a clown lover like I am, but at least she doesn't buy into the whole clowns are evil crap. And even she could tell this one was something special. Her son was turning four in a couple weeks, and she whispered, Think I could get this guy for Jack's party? I said it wouldn't hurt to try. We hung around so she could ask him about his schedule and prices, but the clown never took a break. Forty-five minutes we stood there as crowds formed and melted around us. New excited children rushing up as already dazzled ones were led away. And never once did he stop performing. And though he repeated some tricks, made a few of the same balloon animals, his act never got old. 
There was something in that wink. Some magic in that mischievous white face that made it hard to look away. Finally, Cheryl sighed and said, Let's just go. He's never going to stop. She shouldered her way out of the crowd and I followed reluctantly. I'd only gone a few steps when I felt a soft hand on my arm. I turned and there was the clown, smiling at me. His face was white with a black diamond beneath his right eye and a green crescent moon beside his left. His makeup was flawless, despite the hot day and the energy he'd put into his performance. But it was his eyes themselves that stole the show. Sky blue and twinkling. The same color as his curly wig. His large red grin was a little lopsided, something I found helplessly cute. He gently held my elbow with his gloved right hand. In his left was a scraggly fake flower. I glanced at it and smiled. He followed my gaze, appeared shocked to see the flower in his own hand, shook his head violently, snapped his fingers, and somehow turned the flower into a business card, which he placed into my hand before bowing and turning back to the crowd. By the time I caught up with Cheryl, I was blushing. She held her hand out for the card, but I hesitated. She said, what, you're not going to call him, are you? I said, I, I don't know, maybe. Aren't you? She said yes, but that she had a child and a birthday party and, you know, a reason to call a clown? I shrugged and let it go. Part of me wanted to write down his number, but I didn't. However, I did attend Cheryl's son's birthday party. Something I normally would have avoided. The clown, Blake, was there in the same polka dot outfit, same lopsided smile, and the same blue wig that matched his eyes. He made captivating the attention of eight four-year-olds look easy, and again, never took a break. Even the parents seemed impressed. There were the usual phony shivers and the obligatory references to the movie It, but none of it held any weight. These people were having fun, and the weak mimosas they sipped weren't enough to feed their fake fear. I stood apart from them and just watched. I have to admit, sight of this guy in action got me pretty aroused. Oh my god, did you just shudder? Seriously? It's only makeup. There's an actual person under there, you know. I'm not some perv because I was attracted to a man who could make a mean balloon animal. It wasn't that anyway. It was his whole demeanor. The confidence he exuded. His sincerity. Okay, whatever, I don't care what you think. Aren't you supposed to be a professional? Get it together. So, Blake. Cheryl kept saying, Who's ever heard of a clown named Blake? And I'm like, What were you expecting, Bozo? Jeez, in a way she was right though. Blake's last name on his card was obviously fake, a stage name. So it was a little weird that he didn't have a silly first name to match. Oh, <laughs> his last name? It was Bamboozalami or something like that. Okay, yes, I do remember. That was it. After the party, I was reaching for the last chocolate chip cookie on a Spider-Man plate when a voice said, Feeling brave? I turned around and the clown was right behind me, his spiky blue eyebrows raised. He pointed to the cookie and said, These little monsters will eat anything. If they're avoiding that cookie, you can bet there's a reason. He had a point. I laughed and thanked him for rescuing me from a fate worse than death. We started chatting and he seemed really cool. Normal. Smart guy. Within ten minutes, we'd covered everything from favorite ice cream flavors to classic literature without a single awkward pause in the conversation. In those eyes, 
I felt like I could look into those eyes for days. So we made a date. It was super casual. We didn't even trade numbers or anything. Just made plans to meet the following afternoon at a cafe near the mall. Then he packed up his juggling pins and balloons and hit the road. Cheryl and her husband both gave me those big-eyed looks like I had just made a date with the devil. I swear, people are idiots. Hmm? No, I don't really talk to them anymore. I don't know, they're always busy with Jack and I, I don't know. I got to the cafe a couple minutes late. I hate getting somewhere early and then looking around expectantly for 15 minutes. But he wasn't there, so I sat down and waited. 20 minutes later, he still hadn't arrived. Since we hadn't exchanged numbers, I couldn't call him. I could have called Cheryl, I guess, since she had his card, but that would have been too embarrassing. There was no way I was listening to her laugh at me for being stood up by a clown. I was just getting up to leave when he rounded the corner, out of breath and somewhat panicked looking. I say somewhat because it's hard to look panicked when you've got a huge fake grin painted on your face. Blake was in full-on clown mode again. Makeup, polka dot, the works. I crossed my arms and tried to look annoyed at his lateness, but I could already feel a grin playing on my own lips. It was impossible to look at this guy and not smile. Here he was, doubled over, panting, holding a finger up in a wait-a-sex sign with one hand and clutching his blue wig in a oh-my-god-I'm-sorry-I'm-late gesture with the other. Everyone in the cafe was staring. I think they thought I was about to get the weirdest singing telegram ever. So when Blake finally caught his breath and apologized? Church carnival, flat tire, no time to go home and change, didn't want me to think I'd been stood up. And then we sat down at a table like normal folks. They seemed disappointed. Although I think I saw one woman snap a picture with her phone. The absurdity of having lunch with a clown was not lost, even on me. I laughed all the way through my Greek salad while he made serious conversation about politics and art. Punctuated with corny puns and twice a honk from his round red nose. I just laughed louder. When it looked as if the cafe's owner was building up the courage to ask us to keep it down, we left and took a walk around the nearby duck pond. I held his white-gloved hand as we watched the duck scurry away from us. Romantic, right? Laugh if you want, but it was. We made another date. A real one for Friday night. And this time, we exchanged numbers. Does does what hurt? Oh, no. I'm I'm fine. I I just have something under my fingernail. I I usually use my pocket knife to dig little stuff out, but since you have that, this toothpick will have to do. No, it's not painful. I just I just like to keep them clean. Right. So we made a date for Friday at this Italian bistro downtown. Kind of an expensive place, actually. I got the feeling he wanted to make up for the lunch date, even though it had turned out pretty fun. During the next few days, we talked on the phone and texted quite a bit. Flirty stuff, jokes, the kind of inane back and forth that makes beginnings of relationships so fun, but that you cringe at later because it's so cheesy. There were a lot of puns involved. Him saying he had a lot to juggle. Me telling him to stop clowning around. Never mind, it's it's stupid. But at the time, I... I grinned a giant smitten grin every time my phone dinged, and I relished every silly message. It may sound strange, but I was seriously falling for the guy. Of course, a lot of our conversation had to do with the fact that I still didn't know what he looked like. His only Facebook page was a professional one, and he was always in character there. I wasn't above Googling him, of course, but I didn't know his real last name, and my Blake Clown searches weren't pulling up anything useful. 
Honestly, though, I didn't really try that hard. There was excitement in the mystery, and I was having so much fun with him that I really didn't care what he looked like underneath the paint. I mean, I'm not some kind of shallow snob. On Friday night, I spent forever deciding what to wear, which is not like me. I got ready early, but made myself wait. We were meeting at the restaurant again, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't arrive first. I parked a block away, thinking that way he'd have a nice view of me walking up. I'd settled on this short orange dress and these tall brown boots that I never wear. And well, I felt pretty good about myself that night. I felt different. Good different. I was worried Blake would be late again, but when I rounded the corner, my doubts disappeared. He was sitting outside the restaurant, one arm stretched across the back of the bench, the other gripping a long-stemmed red rose. He had one leg crossed casually over the other and a huge smile on his face. A real one. Underneath the one that was painted on. Because once again, Blake was dressed as a clown. I stopped. Blake stuck the rose between his teeth and wiggled his pointy eyebrows. He was still smiling, but I sensed a question in his expression. A nervousness. He'd taken a big chance with this joke and he was waiting to see how it would land. I couldn't resist, he said. I burst out laughing. Blake stood up and walked over to me, his relief evident. He handed me the rose and said, I'm so glad you showed up. If you hadn't, I would have had to turn this smile into a frown, and that's not as easy as it looks. He pointed to his large red painted on lips. I stood on my tiptoes and kissed them. He kissed me back, and it was a couple of minutes before I came to my senses and realized I was making out in a public sidewalk with a clown. Opening my eyes, I saw that people were having to walk around us, some giving us crazy looks and others pretending we didn't exist. I pulled away, but not far. The thing is, he was a really good kisser. I took Blake's hand and said, maybe dinner can wait, or something equally embarrassing. He didn't say a thing, just turned and started walking away from the restaurant, leading me by the hand. My heart raced. I didn't know where we were going, but I didn't care. I felt like words would break the spell, so I just followed. When Blake stopped in front of an old historic hotel a couple blocks down, I nodded. Look, don't judge me. I don't sleep around, okay? I'm not normally the kind of girl to jump into bed with a guy on the second date. But I don't know. I was feeling frisky, I guess. I mean, I was really falling for this guy. He'd occupied all my walking thoughts for the past week and snuck uninvited into some of my dreams. Plus, he'd risked so much for that joke. And then the kissing. Besides, it was just too perfect. Too eerily, hilariously perfect. What a way to shock those silly clown fears out of their socks. What a story to tell, right? So we got a room. And do you have a nail file? No, it's, it's fine, never mind. The sun was setting, and the heavy curtains covered the only window, draping the room in a deep purplish shadow. I reached for the lamp, but Blake put his hand on mine, saying, Let's leave the lights off. That's the last thing either of us said for a while. We didn't need words. Our bodies knew what to do. Blake's lips were soft and silky, greased with paint that had a sharp, almost sweet odor. I closed my eyes, and the sensation of his kiss on my neck was so intoxicating that I temporarily forgot he was dressed as a clown. Then his white-gloved hand crept up my thigh and I giggled. That broke the spell for a second, 
but only a second. My fingers fumbled with the orange pom-poms on his shirt and he whispered, Allow me. It was so dark in the room I couldn't make out his expression, but at that moment, the little bit of light found his blue eyes and made them sparkle. There was a shuffling sound and then my hands found Blake's chest, which was just as soft and silky as his lips. The sweet chemical smell reached my nose again, but before I could consider why a clown would need to paint his torso too, Blake's lips found mine and things progressed. Look, I'm not going to give you a play-by-play, all right? God, who's the perv now? I know what you white coats are like, but the details are none of your business. They're not important anyway. It was what came after the sex that mattered. I excused myself and went to the restroom. I looked in the mirror, naked, hair disheveled, my face and body smeared with makeup, and suppressed a laugh. Who are you? I wanted to ask my reflection. I washed up, combed my hair with my fingers and wrapped a towel around myself before going back into the room. Blake was still in the bed. He had the covers pulled up to his chin like a little boy who's afraid of the dark. The curtains were still closed. I switched the lamp on for the first time and squinted at the brightness. I suddenly felt a little bashful. Here it was, barely dusk on a Friday night, and I'd already gone to bed with a guy. Who? Who, for all the good conversation and flirty texts, I really didn't know much about. I felt a twinge of anxiety, but the feeling passed. Seeing him like that, his clown face peeking up from the hotel comforter, his white-gloved hands grasping the bedding like he was about to play peekaboo, relaxed me. Blake was the picture of innocence. Then I noticed how his face still looked freshly painted, despite the makeup that had smeared onto mine, and his wig was still perfectly in place while my hair was a total mess. And I realized how strange it was that he'd put his gloves back on. I was, uh, I was sure they were off, during. He made no move to pull the covers down, so I sat on top of them. So, I said. So, he said, and his voice was croaky, like he needed to clear his throat. I let out a sigh and said, Blake, bamboozalami, it's time to take off the makeup. And he said, Huh? I'm, I'm fine. My toothpick broke, that's all. Why do you need the pieces? It's okay. I'll just use this end. No, really, it's fine. I don't need to give you okay. Geez, here, knock yourself out. Maybe you can use it to finally get that poppy seed out of your teeth. Blake was still peeping at me from under the covers, and he said, Why? Well, that pissed me off. I was tired of the game. I'd come to appreciate his humor, but I was a little annoyed and a little hungry and a little over the joke. I told him enough was enough, and I wanted to see his face. My face, he asked. Yes, I said, the real you. He didn't move. And when he started to talk again, his voice came out hoarse and hollow, as if he was answering me from inside of a well. Some say masks reveal a person's true face. Do you know that every clown has his own unique makeup? No two are alike. Who's to say this isn't the real me? A chill crept up the back of my neck. I looked at his white face and sharp blue eyebrows, the black diamond beneath his right eye and the green crescent moon by his left, and his red grin. Its slight lopsidedness no longer endearing. It was obvious he was hiding something. Embarrassment gripped me for not seeing it sooner. But 
what, what was it? A disease? A tattoo? A hideous scar? Or was it something bigger than that? Maybe, maybe he was married. Maybe he was wanted for murder. Maybe everything he told me was a lie. I crossed my arms and said, Real you or not, I want to see what's under the paint. There was a long pause, and then Blake's hoarse voice croaked, Very well. I expected him to get up, go take a shower or something, but no. He just took his gloved hands off the comforter and placed them behind his head like he was lounging on the beach. Then he said, You may do the honors if you must, and he smiled. I was livid. I pushed myself up onto my knees and straddled him on top of the covers. My towel fell off and a light was still on, and normally I'd be shy about that kind of thing, but I didn't budge. I placed my fingertips on Blake's face, then paused. He just stared at me, blue eyes twinkling. I started rubbing the greasy makeup off with my hands. I wasn't being gentle either. The stuff was so thick I really had to dig my thumbs into his cheeks and temples to get it off. It had to be uncomfortable, but he didn't say a word, just kept smiling. Soon my hands were caked in the white gunk and more was coming off, but it was darker now, with a grayish tint. The smell got stronger the more I scraped. Sweet still, but sharp and sour too, like something unearthed after a long time underground. I couldn't believe clown makeup had so many layers. Finally, frustrated with the lack of progress I was making, who wouldn't even wash his face like a normal person so I could see who the hell I just slept with, frustrated with the stupid effing smile plastered on his stupid effing lips, I dug my fingernails in, hard. And a piece of Blake's face came off in my hand. It left a dark hole to the left of his chin, like a dimple that just kept going. I froze, looking at the soft, heavy lump of flesh. One side was the bright white of the clown makeup, and the other was a dull gray color. My stomach flipped over and I suppressed a gag. Blake still hadn't moved. He lay there with his hands behind his head, smiling totally relaxed. And then, from deep in his throat, came a low, dry laugh. I kind of freaked out then. I mean, here I was, naked in this room with a guy. This clown. This whatever he was. And my hands were... Yeah, I freaked out. I started pulling and clawing and scraping at his face. That's... All I really remember, just ripping and tearing and digging and screaming, and all the while the deep, hollow laugh getting louder and louder, echoing off the walls, seeping into my bones. I screamed, and I shredded, and I tore, and I couldn't tell you if it was minutes or hours, but suddenly the laughter stopped. And I stopped. And I looked down at what I'd done. The makeup was gone. Everything was gone. Blue eyes stared up at me from a skinless, rotten skull. The next thing I knew, I was home. My dress was on backwards, and I was barefoot, and my fingernails were caked with thick white paint and something else. I got in the shower and scrubbed and scrubbed my hands until the hot water ran out and the tips of my fingers were swollen red nubs. Can I have my toothpick back? Yes, I know there's no record of the incident. I know the hotel never corroborated my story. Can I have it? Yes, I'm aware Blake's Facebook page is gone, and no, I don't know why Cheryl won't return your calls. Can I borrow it for a second? What others? Blake's the only clown I ever dated. Uh oh, 
Them? They'll be fine. It was just a couple of scratches. Okay, fine. A few stitches. Whatever. They probably won't even have scars. And if they do, they could just paint over them. Can I have it back now? I just need to get this one piece of dirt. Please? Please? Please just give me the freaking toothpick! Thank you. I just had to check, you know? I just had to be sure. No, I'm still not afraid of clowns. It's what's underneath the makeup that haunts me. That was Carrie Jutner's Makeup, as read by Danielle Gracie. Danielle is recording out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. When she isn't recording, she can be found chasing her small children around. She is a full-time graphic designer who spends her days at a print shop. Thank you, Danielle. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.